Hi, this is Pastor James Strickland, and you are listening to our sermon cast for Homeland Park Baptist Church. Before we leave the book of Nehemiah, we've got one of the greatest lessons of all, that rebuilding takes two things, leading and loving. And I would say that if you are leading, that is a form of love. I mean, think about it. Those of you that have families, you have brothers, sisters, cousins, second cousins, uh, and the whole nine yards, grandkids and great-grandkids and go on. You lead them. You are their leaders because the term leadership basically means, as John Maxwell says, leadership is influence. And so all of us have influence over somebody. Think about it for a moment. Who do you have influence over? You got somebody? I'll tell you what, it's funny when, when we see, especially the children are here, they'll look up to the, the teenagers, and the teenagers look up to the college kids, and the college kids look up to nobody. And then you have the, the adults, and then you have the great grandparents, and, and, uh, it's been neat to see how our younger families have been looking to our senior adults, and have been not only learning about ministry, but learning about life. But, The reason I say all that is that we influence people, we lead people. And so as a parent, as a pastor, as a Bible study teacher, as just a a good person, you try to lead people because you love them, right? Well, rebuilding, as we see here, was not a one-time thing. It wasn't like Nehemiah was going to say, okay, the walls are built, I'm done, I'm out of here. No, it was much more than that. It was a process that even after it was completed and systems were put in place, it was a constant work. It's kind of like when someone gets married, you think, oh, you know, you've got the perfect service and you've got the flowers or however you you had it when you were married or you may be hoping to get married one day or maybe you don't want to be married at all. I don't know. But when you come and you, you have the perfect song, you have the, the preacher marrying you and you have everything is great and the bride is beautiful and the groom is handsome and everything is great. And he says, you now may kiss your bride and I now pronounce you man and wife. The effort doesn't stop there, does it? It's not like, oh, we're married. Everything's good now. We're never, ever going to have any problems because we're married. No. Marriage is a, a challenge. Marriage is a blessing. Marriage is a process of you get married and then you learn to love each other every day more and more. There is nobody in this world that can drive me crazier than my wife. But even after 30 years of marriage, I'm still finding out new things about her. And if she were here, I'm sure she could give you a laundry list of things that I drive her crazy with. But the thing is, is that I lead her because I love her. She leads me because she loves me. So leading others is an act of love, especially when it's difficult. You see, Nehemiah had the responsibility from God to lead his people, not only in the physical sense of rebuilding the walls, but in a spiritual sense. So even something we need to understand here, the walls are built, the people, as we've walked through Nehemiah, the people have have started their infrastructure, people have moved back, they have signed a document last week in the last chapter saying that they were going to commit to all these things that God says, and so everything is great, but then we're going to see here that even in a short amount of time, things started to go south. 
even after the great victories, comes our biggest temptations. And let me just tell you that again. I remember when a preacher said this. Uh, I remember his name was, I believe it was Rob White. It's back a long time ago when um, Covenant was uh, Northside. And they were meeting at Calhoun Elementary School. I remember where it was. I was in college. And he said this, and I took it to the bank. After your greatest spiritual victories comes your greatest temptations. And that's the truth, isn't it? It's the truth that after everything is great, and, and, and you feel like, oh, I can breathe again. Here it comes, whoom, getting ready to sweep you off of your feet or knock you over. And that's what's happening here to the people of Israel as they are in Jerusalem. And everything is great. Everything is rebuilt. And they can sigh a sigh of relief, you would think. Until we get into the scriptures this morning. Uh, first of all, we see here in verses 1 through 3 that good leaders lead with God's word. Folks, I'm going to go ahead and tell you, it doesn't matter what comes out of my mouth. It doesn't matter what I post, what I write, what I do. What comes out of this book, what comes out of God's word is what we base our life on. I don't base my life on morality by what the government tells me is and is not. I don't base my morality on what the current hashtag or social media feed tells me it needs to be important. I base it off of God's word. And so we see here in verse 1, on that same day as the book of Moses was being read to the people, the passage was found that said no Ammonites or Moabites should ever be permitted to enter the assembly of God. Wow! Preacher, I just don't understand why that Bible passage says that God's not going to let people in the church. Well, it's more than that. Let's unpack that for a minute. God's rules are His to abide, to make, right? God's rules are His to make and us to abide by. It's kind of like that child. They get old enough to where they want to be their own person. They may be 18, 19. They're out of high school. They want to be their own boss, but they're still living at home. And then mom and dad have to say, look, you can do what you want to do, but this is my house, my rules, my roof. If you want to do your own thing, then you can go under and get your own roof, your own bills, and your own whatevers. Because this is our house. It's my house, and you're going to live according to our rules, right? Your house, your way. This is God's house. This is God's rules. And if we are going to be in God, if we are going to be a part of his family, we are going to live by his rules. And so at first glance, someone may be offended by this passage and say that the Ammonites and the Moabites should should get out of the temple. But I want to understand or make you understand here, this was not about racism. This was not because they were a different race from the Jews who had come back to Jerusalem. This was meant to restore the right worship in the temple, and I'll show you what I mean. Ammonites and Moabites were not regarded as part of Israel. They were not Israelites, just like you and I. That if you're, Some of you may be born Jewish, but most of us are not, so we are considered Gentiles. We are non-Jews. And so at that point... According to the Old Testament, to worship in the temple, you had to be a Jew. And they were not that. They were not Jewish. And God's law clearly stated that these two type of people should never be allowed to enter into the temple. We can see that in Deuteronomy 23, verses 3 through 5. So what I want you to see here is that they were letting these Ammonites and these Moabites into the worship. And being and they were able to participate and lead in worship, and, and worship just as the Jews did, but yet they were not 
Jewish. And the issue is not, again, their race. The issue was God said, don't let them come in. And they said, ah, we want to be open-minded. We want to, we want to make sure that, that it's not that big a deal anymore, right? Those kind of things. Well, worship in the temple was for God's people and him alone. An Israelite was part of God's covenant by birth. Just to go way back, God made a covenant or a promise with Abraham that said, I'm going to make you the father of many nations. This is where the Jewish people came from. And so this was God's plan. And now the Ammonites and the Moabites, they were spawned off of the other side. Now, this, this goes really deep, and I don't have time to go into it. But I'll just say, if you remember way back, when uh, Abraham had a child with Sarah, his name was Isaac. But he was the second child, right? The first child was Ishmael because God wasn't working fast enough. So his wife and he decided that he could have a child with one of the servants, Hagar, who was named Ishmael. And God said, Isaac, I have loved. Ishmael, I have hated. In other words, he's saying that my People are going to come from the lineage of Isaac and not Ishmael. Ammonites, Moabites, they're part of that lineage. If you remember Jacob and Esau, Esau was a Moabite. So what I'm trying to show you here in a very broad-brushed approach is that these were people that were sworn enemies of God that were participating in the worship service. It wasn't that they were coming to learn more, to become Jewish. They were in there among the people causing a stir. So if you place it in the context, we see that God's law clearly states that they should not have been allowed in there. Also, God's law says in Deuteronomy 10 that God loves all people, including foreigners. So it wasn't he didn't love these people, but they shouldn't have been in the temple leading in worship like that. We also see that he allowed foreigners to make sacrifices in Numbers 15, and that also that he desires all nations to know him and love him. So this is not God spiting these people. It is the fact that the the Israelites were letting things going on in worship that God told them not to do. Proverbs 24.1 says this. It says, don't envy people or desire, excuse me, don't envy evil people or desire their company. Here's the thing. These Ammonites and these Moabites, they were the cool guys. They, they were the people that were in the surrounding areas and and they wanted to kind of be like them. So they said, yeah, you, you come on into our worship services instead of the worship services rubbing off on the Ammonites and the Moabites for them to hopefully convert to Judaism. The Ammonites and the Moabites practices were rubbing off and watering down what those Israelites were trying to do. Verses 2 and 3 says, For they had not provided the Israelites with food and water in the wilderness, and said they hired Balaam to curse them. Though our God turned the curse into blessing, when this passage of the law was read, all those foreigner descendants were immediately excluded from the assembly. So, here we go. Nehemiah is reminding them, look, when you were in the wilderness for 40 years, these folks were not the ones that were providing your food. These were not the ones taking care of you. As a matter of fact, they come from the very people that cursed you. And they wanted me to do something horrible to you. And now you're buddy-buddy with them? 
God's exclusion of the Ammonites and the Moabites sent a powerful message, and this is what it was. We need to be a worship for the right reasons. Any non-Jewish person was not born in the covenant that I talked about with Abraham, which means that they were not part of that descendant. They were not Jewish descendants. Folks, if you want to worship in the Jewish temple, you must leave your anti-God beliefs and culture to come join the life of God's people. That's what he was saying. Now, you cannot enjoy the benefits of worshiping God if you're not willing to believe in him. But we see here in verse 3, separation was necessary. They could have thought of 20 reasons why not to do what God's word says. They may could have said that that command was made long ago in a different time. They could have said that things are different now. They could have said, let's not go overboard or let's assign a committee to examine this problem. And Nehemiah saying, no, look, you have got a cancer among you. You have let the enemy in among you people as you worship and it's time to get him out. Hear me, church. Those of other faiths and beliefs are welcome in church today. If you are in this church today and you do not believe in Jesus, it does not mean that you are excluded and should be left out because of the work that Jesus Christ has done. But we must understand that when somebody comes into our church and they are not believers in us, in Jesus, and they are not believers and they don't want to be a part of the process, but I'll give you a, a fine example. Many years ago, uh, there was a, um, a group of, of guys that were part of a, I'm going to call it a cult. They would call it a church, but they were a cult. And we were in a large church in, in Spartanburg. And uh, so they came in on a Sunday night, and they had a certain dress about them. You knew where they stood. And all they did is they came in on the back row, and they were there to, uh, they just sat. Now, of course... Most of the people in the church knew exactly what religion they, was, they, um, they represented. And so, of course, after the service, people started going back there and talking to them. And here's the thing I wanted you to see. They were not there to learn about Jesus. They were there to promote their beliefs. That is the situation I'm talking about. I'm not talking about somebody who is coming here and they're searching for hope. They're searching for answers. They're searching for Jesus. And if they, they by chance find him here, then we will celebrate. But these people were coming in to cause havoc. Second thing we see in verses 4 through 9, that we need to establish proper worship practices. And I'll just kind of paraphrase this for you. In verses 4 through 9, what we see is Eliashib the priest was over everything in the temple. And so they had rooms that were set apart when people would bring the first fruits or their tithes of food or money or grain or whatever it may be. They would be stored in these rooms for the use in the temple. But Eliashib, he had a family member that was down and out and needed a place to crash. So he allowed his family member to come in and rent a room in the temple, the place that was meant for these sacred items was now an Airbnb for Eliashib's good old buddy. And if you read in the scripture here, you will see his good old buddy was none other than who? Tobiah, the Ammonite. Tobiah, the Ammonite, if you hadn't been on this journey with us, through Nehemiah, at every step of the way, when Nehemiah was trying to rebuild 
the walls, Tobiah the Ammonite was the one that was standing in the way, causing roadblocks, even threatening Nehemiah with his life. And so now, the priest of the temple is letting his family member, because they were related, letting his family member crash in a room and paying rent for that. He couldn't believe that. He could not believe this was going on. And it says in verse 6, I was not in Jerusalem at the time, for I had returned to King Artaxerxes of Babylon in the 32nd year of his reign, though I later asked permission to return. Here's an age-old business principle. Some of you probably have heard it. Some of you may even use it. But people don't do what you expect. They do what you what? Anybody? I know you know it, Joe. People don't do what you expect. People do what you inspect. And so what had happened is, is that Nehemiah had gone back to King Artaxerxes. He was the one that funded and made this whole rebuilding process possible. He was a Persian king. So Nehemiah went back to his job. And then in that 10 and 12 years, we now have people that shouldn't be in worship in worship. We now have somebody living in the temple in a sacred room that shouldn't be living in that room. So he became very upset. So Nehemiah had to take action because the temple records, they were reserved for worship. They were not meant to be Airbnbs. Eliashib, who was supposed to be the spiritual leader of Israel, he had a blind spot for his family member. And here's the worst thing of it all, is that Eliashib was doing all of this, and it wasn't like he was being brazen and out front about it, but there were just little things that he let slide. Hey, I want to help my friend, my, my family member out. Hey, I don't want to make a big deal about these people coming to our church. And so already things are starting to water down, and there was no one, I mean, no one is recorded in this passage that came to Eliashib while Nehemiah was gone and said, Eliashib, look, you're messing up, dude. Nobody. There were no checks and balances. So Eliashib, he was doing what he felt was right, even though it wasn't what God told him to do. And so Nehemiah comes in, and he's pretty infuriated. Because what's happening here is that they are tolerating sin. They are allowing people that are unashamedly sinful and almost they, they even deny God and letting them be a part and, and thinking that they're a part of this worship time. They were tolerating sin. So Tobiah is a classic example of that rebellious unbeliever seeking to stop the word of God. You ever heard of the old term, there's a fox in the hen house? There were a lot of foxes in the hen house at that time. It might have been easier for Nehemiah just to let this slide, but Nehemiah rightly rejects this arrangement. Folks, be careful when you can identify sin in your life and still tolerate it. That's what was happening here. Hey, look, I know this is going on, but everybody else is doing this, so it's, it's not that big a deal. You don't have any friends correcting you on it. You're not reading God's word and taking it seriously when it says don't do it. But you just say, hey, it's okay, man. It's, preacher, you just, that book is old and, and, you know, you just don't understand today what things are like. Look, you can make every excuse you want, but be careful. When you can identify sin in your life and still tolerate it, it is going to get a hold of you. 
If you let it slide a few times, pretty soon you won't even notice until it takes root in your life. Is this not what happened in our world today? Even in the modern American church, people tolerate sin instead of taking necessary actions to get rid of it. K. Arthur has this quote, and it's one that, that has been used by many people and many times. And she said this, Sin will take you farther than you ever expected to go. It will keep you longer than you ever intended to stay. And it will cost you more than you ever expected to pay. Either write that down, take a picture of it with your phone. If you've got photographic memory, take a picture of that. But it is true, so true. We think that when we are in the middle of sin that we've got it handled. But we don't understand that it'll make us pay a price greater than we ever have. How many celebrities, preachers, family members have we seen go down because they didn't take this seriously? We need to correct our compromise. In verses 10 through 14, we see here that it says, I also discovered the Levites had not been given their prescribed portions of food So they and the singers who were conducting worship services had all returned to work in the field. So the band left the temple. The band and the the leaders that were getting everything going, they said, look, our main job is to do this, but I can't make enough money doing this. So I'm going to go back to the fields where I can really make the money. Because the thing is, serving God was not as important as making their money and doing what they used to do. Then it says in verse 11, I notice Nehemiah, he says, I immediately confronted the leaders and demanded, why has the temple of God been neglected? Then I called all the Levites back again and restored them to their proper duties. And once more, all the people of Judah began bringing the tithes and grains, new wine and olive oil to the temple storerooms. Look, the things that mattered to people were put first over the things that mattered to God. And so what we see in this passage is because the temple workers had left to go work in the fields and do whatever they wanted to do, the work in the temple was not being done. I got news for you. When people don't come to church, things don't get done in the church. That's the way it goes. I mean, if we want to rebuild and if we want to do things, we have to have people that will do them. Look, I know that there are a lot more important things out there than being in a pew for 45 minutes on a Sunday. But is it? Is it really? Where else are you hearing God's word proclaimed? Are you reading it throughout the week? Are you catching a devotion on your cell phone? Are you watching something on the computer? Are you talking to your friend about spiritual things? Look, I I don't... They, they said this was years ago. They said that the the average the average attendance of a committed church member is now two week, two Sundays out of the month. So with that being said, some of you are way overachievers, and I thank you for that. But but let's be honest. To, to some people, church is not that important anymore. They're going out, and instead of being in church. They're having their family days. They're working. They're doing other things. And look, that's fine for them. Everybody needs a vacation. Everybody needs a break. Everybody, Even I enjoy a Sunday or two off a year from coming to church. Look, I understand that. But the thing is, is that when everything outside of the church becomes more important than things inside of the church, and when I say that, I'm not talking about 
my pet projects that I like. I'm not talking about those things that your family has been a part of for years. But I'm talking about what God wants to do in this church. When that becomes unimportant, then it starts to suffer. And as people compromised in this passage on their giving and making God a priority, the worship and the work of God suffered. Let me ask you this. Is your compromise cheating God? This is in Malachi chapter 3, verse 8. It says, Should people cheat God? Yet you have cheated me. But you ask, what do you mean? When did we ever cheat you? He says, You have cheated me of the tithes and offerings that were due me. Folks, to keep your resources and time that is meant for God means you are robbing God. And here is the answer. Yes, the people had stolen from God in the matter of the Levites. Their lives were cursed because they were not doing what they should do. Then we see in verse 13 that Nehemiah assigns supervisors and he starts to remedy that. But the problem was, is these people in the church, their kingdom became more important than God's kingdom. Then in verses 15 through 22, we see that we need to lead people to evaluate their priorities. What was happening here is that instead of resting on the Sabbath, like they were supposed to, now again, this is Old Testament Jewish law. The Sabbath was you rested on the Sabbath. They were to rest and trust God, but yet they were using that for commerce. They were selling. They were keeping the stores open. They were... They were making money. They were doing everything but resting. And the problem was not the selling. It was the fact that they were not making time for God. The Sabbath to them was not a priority. Rather than focusing on God for one day of the week, it was more important to line their pocketbooks and to fill their closets and their storage rooms with all the stuff they wanted to accumulate. Now, I just want to make it clear that the New Testament clearly states that we are not under the law of keeping the Sabbath in the same sense that Nehemiah was talking here. We know that because of Colossians chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. However, we still must make honoring God more important than making money or spending it. Look, some of some people, they have to work on Sundays. Someone in the food industry has to work on Sundays because the good God-fearing Christians are the ones that want, us, want them to serve them and feed them on Sundays. If you're a Christian and you're complaining about, oh, everybody's working on Sundays, you better stop going out to restaurants. But it's not about whether you're working on Sundays. Even Jesus, if you remember in the New Testament, he would do miracles on the Sabbath. And the, the, the Jewish leaders would just really freak out about that. But what the purpose is and what Paul was saying in Colossians chapter 2 is, are we honoring God? Are we making room for him? Are we making more room for ourselves? In verses 15 through 22, we need to lead people away from compromising relationships. It says in verse 23, about the same time I realized that some of the men in Judah had married women from Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. So again, here we see the men were marrying women from other countries, other areas. Furthermore, half their children spoke the language of Ashdod or some other people and could not speak the language of Judah at all. So I confronted them and called them down 
curses on them. <laughs> it says it here. I beat some of them and pulled out their hair. I made them swear in the name of God that they would not let their children intermarry with the pagan people of the land. In Nehemiah's absence, the Israelites resumed their practice of intermarrying with the pagan nations around them. And this is what got them exiled in the first place. Their dedication to God's laws wavered because they accepted the beliefs of those that they got married. I mean, think about it. A Jewish man marries an Ammonite woman. They live in Jerusalem. How do they raise their children? Do they raise them as Jews or Ammonites or a combination of both or neither? I've seen even when, when I've gone through premarital counseling with people, and one may be from, say, a Baptist tradition, another one's from a Catholic or Methodist, or one's saved and one's not saved. There's, there's always going to be friction of, and people just, you know, many people think, oh, we're just going to get married, we're going to love each other. We'll figure that out later. Later never comes. The Bible is not talking about you cannot marry people of a different color skin. He's saying that do not marry people that do not believe in God and that are going to water down, take away, and pull you away from your faith. And he gave a great example here. Verse 26 says, Wasn't, the ex- wasn't this exactly what led King Solomon of Israel into sin? Remember King Solomon, richest man ever. He prayed for wisdom. God gave it to him. Some would say, Again, the richest man ever, and he would be the cover boy of every Fortune 500 magazine back in the day. He had everything. But yet his downfall was women. His downfall was women. He had 300 wives. I I cannot imagine that. And then on top of 300 wives, he had what they called 700 concubines. So that's at any moment he had a choice to be with over a 1,000 women. I'm doing my best to be with the one I've got, and I love her, and I'm not going to trade her in for nothing. I can't imagine a thousand. But the problem was is that he was the king, and if he were to be going through the the city and he would see a beautiful young girl that wasn't married, he would say, come on. He would just, it would be like Walmart for him. He'd be able to pick whatever whatever lady he wanted to pick. Now we'd probably call it trafficking. But back in the day, they could do that. And so what would happen is, he would have all these women in his harem, or, or however you want to call it, and they would all bring their religious beliefs and their idols with them. And so instead of him saying, look, everybody needs to worship the one true God, he would say, you can bring your thing, and I'll build you a temple over there for you, and I'll build you a temple over there for you, and I'll build you a temple over there, until finally what you had was his faith was being watered down by the influence of all these other women and their faith. And that's what he's saying here. On verse 28, one of the sons of Jehida, son of Elisheb, the high priest, had married a daughter of Sanballat the Horonite. So again, Sanballat is just as bad as Tobiah. If you go back and you read earlier Nehemiah, this was another one of Nehemiah's great opponents. So he banished them from my presence. And remember them, oh my God, for they have defiled the priesthood and the solemn vows of the priests and Levites. Then he says this, verse 30, So I purged out everything foreign and assigned tasks to the priests and the Levites, making certain that each knew his work. 
Verse 31, I also made sure that the supply of wood for the altar and the first portions of the finest harvest were brought at the proper times. What it sounds like to me, and you can read it for yourself, but what it sounds like to me that the work of God was being neglected in the temple because people were in it that didn't have the same focus or motivation. They were all focused on themselves rather than God. And the work of God was suffering. And again, this is only 10 or 12 years from where they had signed this, this declaration saying, we are going to be the most dedicated Christians you've ever seen, God. Here's where the problem is. The Israelites said yes to their relationships that God said no to. They said yes to the relationships that God says no to. God said, do not intermarry with people of other beliefs that are not Jewish. And they said, oh, God, you just don't understand. She is beautiful. Oh, God, you would understand with a woman that beautiful? Of course I want to marry her. Or I used to love this back in youth group where the guy or the girl would come up and they'd say, look, I'm dating. I want you to pray for so-and-so. I'm dating them and I want to win them to Jesus. You know that missionary dating? Sometimes it works where the girl hopes that the boy will come to church and accept Jesus Christ and everything will be a storybook ending. It rarely happens. Or vice versa. The guy's hoping the girl will become a Christian and, and vice versa. Sometimes it works. But more often than not, and you have seen it in your life, I bet, that more often than not, if you pair yourself with somebody that is not a believer, if they don't encourage your walk, they are going to be taken away from it. Let me ask you this. In your relationships, have they made you closer to God or drug you further away from God? That's something only you can answer. And if you're married, I would say we need to talk about how we can change that if it's not. And if you're not married, but yet you're still dating and all that kind of stuff, that's something to think about as you are getting ready to commit your life to someone that doesn't appreciate the same beliefs. It doesn't mean that you can't be friends with them. It doesn't mean you can't reach out to them. It doesn't mean you can't pray for them. It doesn't mean you can't invite them to church. But it does mean that when you are hitching your, your cart to their horse, they're going to drag you wherever they are. That's something we need to think about. So as we... We wrap this up. We can only lead others as God leads us. I love in the, the last verse, the, the last half of it, Nehemiah 13, 31b, which is the second half. Remember this in my favor, O God. What is he saying here? Well, the good is, in the last verse, we see Nehemiah, a man who has burdened himself for his people. He fought the battles. He saw God work, and he did the best he could with what God gave him. The bad was, remember the document that the leader signed in chapter 10? If you go back to chapter 10, it outlines how they would keep God's law intact. They signed on the dotted line saying, we are going to do what the Lord has called us to do. Three of those things were, we will not have ungodly romantic relationships. We will not buy and sell on the Sabbath. And we will not fail to show support for the work of God with the money he has commanded us. All three things they signed to 10 or 12 years later, they are not doing it. Man, James, this is, 
this is you know, a downer. I mean, I thought, you know, we're talking about rebuilding and a church being rebuilt. You know, let's say we can maybe wave a magic wand and all of a sudden Homeland Park Baptist Church is something different than it is now and it's totally rebuilt. Does that mean that we rest back on our laurels and say, oh boy, ain't this good and do nothing? We can't do that because there is always an enemy. There is always somebody. There is that little drift that people want to take for themselves rather than God wants to do. So the, the takeaway here is I remember... Uh, when I was, was younger in youth group and we would go on a retreat and I would just say, oh, you know, the, the youth pastor would say, well, what are you going to do when you get back to, to further your walk with the Lord? I will have my quiet time six days instead of five this, this week. You know, I'm, I'm going to commit to the Lord more times and, and that may last for a day or two, but sometimes I fell short of that. Let me ask you something. Have you ever promised God something and fell short of it? Just like these folks here. Don't throw them under the bus. Because if you've been in that situation where you say, Oh Lord, I I mean to do this, and and I I promise you I'm going to do this. And then before you know or you say, God, I will never do this. And then you find yourself right in the middle of what you told God you would never do. What? Where's Where's the bright spot in this? Where's the hope in this story? Where's the hope for the people of Jerusalem here? Well, the hope is found in the Jesus factor. The hope is found in the Jesus factor. Nehemiah had led his people, he had led them out of love for them, but more importantly, out of the love God had for them. And despite Nehemiah's best efforts, despite his greatest victories, the people still compromised, backslid, and broke their promises. So if you are under the impression that Nehemiah and the Israelites failed, you are wrong. If your religious expectation is to keep as many commandments and laws as possible, you will either have, one, an unrealistic view of yourself, or two, you will be that person that feels like you can never please God. You're either going to be feeling like a Pharisee that is too proud of all the laws they keep, or you're going to act like the the prodigal son that feels like I'm not even worthy to go back and be with the servants. But here's the good news, Romans 8, 3. I put it on the screen for you. The law of Moses was unable to save us because of the weakness of our sinful nature. So God did, not you, not Nehemiah, not your best friend. So God did what the law could not do. He sent his own son, Jesus, in a body like the bodies we sinners have. And in that body, God declared an end to sin's control over us by giving His Son as a sacrifice for sins. We will be celebrating that all month long. And so, as you see here, they rebuilt the work. Nehemiah did what God called him to do. And at the end, they still slid. They still were having issues. And the problem is, or the truth is, we all have issues. No matter how good we try to be, we are all going to fall short. No matter how strong the walls are, or wherever we're at, God's Word says this, we're going to try our best to do it, but sometimes we are going to fall short. That is why you need Jesus. That is why I need Jesus. That is why this church, if we are going to rebuild, we are going to need Jesus to be at the center of that. Because rebuilding takes leading as God leads you and loving others as God has loved you. 
as we lead into whatever God has for us in our personal lives and in our church, don't get bogged down with everything they didn't do. Don't get bogged down in your own life for everything you haven't done or fallen short of. But I'll tell you, friend, what you take from this chapter, if there are small areas of compromise in your life, you better deal with them. Because little areas of compromise will become catastrophic. O.S. Hawkins wrote a book many years ago called Moral Earthquakes, and it's a Bible study on Samson. Remember that story where Delilah cut his hair and he lost his strength? People say, how in the world did that strong man let that woman cut his hair? What she found out was is there were several things leading up to that where he made small choices that did not honor God that led to a big one. And I don't want you all to sit here at some point and say, how did I get here? But it was because there's little compromises along the way. We lead others as God leads us, and we love others as God loves us. If you are falling short today, my friend, that is exactly where you need to be because that is where Jesus comes in. He forgives you of your sins, and he makes right all the wrongs that you have done. And he gives you an opportunity to start over. And if that's you today, I pray that you make that decision.